I think all of us uh, in here today at some point in time uh, have been disappointed, right? Everybody, anybody here not been disappointed? I didn't think so. There's a time in all of our lives when we ha- have been disappointed. And so that was the case with one five-year-old boy living in Texas. He was told by his parents that they were going to visit the Grand Canyon. They told him that he would be very impressed because the Grand Canyon was bigger than downtown Dallas. Now, this is a five-year-old boy. The five-year-old could hardly wait. And when they finally got there, they asked him what he thought. And with a frown on his face, he said, I thought you said that it was a big cannon. C-A-N-N-O-N. I was looking forward to someone shooting the big cannon. When you're hoping for the Grand Canyon, you can be let down even by something as magnificent as the Grand Canyon. The resurrection and the empty tomb at this point have not yet brought a joyful outlook on the followers of Christ. As a matter of fact, this passage reveals two disciples who are dejected. They're extremely sad at the events that have taken place. The two disciples are sad over the death of Jesus and they view His death... Is a setback. This is something that's not joyful for them. I think it would be an understatement to say that these two would never be the same after this particular day. These two, through the Scriptures, and listen carefully there, through the Scriptures, these two would be overcome with joy. They would see that this was God's plan, and God's plan was moving forward, that Jesus is alive, and their hope is renewed. Here's the setting. As Richard read these verses earlier, we see two disappointed disciples of Jesus and they're walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And I'm kind of the mindset that they were going back home. That's where they live. They're headed back home at the crucifixion of Jesus. They're dejected. They're disappointed. And so they're walking seven miles back home from Jerusalem. And it says in verse 21, if you'll look there, that they had put their hope in Jesus. Notice what it says, but we had hoped. They had hoped that this was the promised Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. Notice there it says redeem Israel. These disciples still have a misunderstanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be. They think that Jesus is going to come. He's going to be the Savior of Israel. He's going to take care of their oppressors, the Roman government, and He's going to rise up as the King and they'll be removed from all this oppression. That's how they're looking at their Messiah. And they said that we thought He was going to be the Savior of Israel. But what is going on with these two disciples? Hope is gone, right? It's kind of vanished. The reason being, is we all know, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been killed. So... You know, a lot of times we sit and we read these accounts and we look at them and we go, how foolish could they be? Kind of put yourself in their position and you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. So now it's Sunday morning after Jesus' death. And these two disciples are, as I said earlier, they're going home. They're sad. They're depressed. They're dejected. They didn't understand why God had let them down. That's the mindset they have. We had hope that Jesus was going to be our Savior. He is dead God has let us down. And again, you you and I kind of look at them with a critical eye. When we, in that position, might very well do the same thing. So if you're looking at your hand out there, you see the main idea is this. Hope comes through the risen Savior 
and this is critical here, don't miss this, hope comes through the risen Savior as He is revealed in the Scriptures. Okay? A lot of people in our day and time understand they hear the resurrection of Jesus, but they have a misunderstanding of that. These disciples had a misunderstanding. Did they not? Jesus' death, and they had forgotten all that Jesus had taught them, particularly He was going to die and rise from the dead. They had kind of forgotten that. And so we'll see that Jesus does something that's very important. He brings them back to the Word of God. That's what He does. So the main idea is hope comes through the risen Savior as He is revealed in the Scriptures. So look, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to do it. And as you see the outline, there's four uh, separate points here. I, I kind of look at this in a narrative like it's a play, and there's four acts that's going on. And we're going to walk through it that way. So scene one, if you're looking at your handout there, there's two broken-hearted disciples. It says in verse 13, that very day, it's, it's Sunday, three days after the crucifixion, the same day... The others had gone to the tomb and found the stone rolled away and the body of Jesus missing. That very day. They've heard a rumor, they think. They, they think it's a rumor that Jesus has risen from the dead earlier in the morning. But to their knowledge, nobody has seen Him. That's what's going on in their minds. It says that very day, two of them. We know from verse 18 that one of them is named Cleopas. We're not exactly sure of the other one. So it says two of them were going to the village of Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Here's Picture this. Visualize what's going on. Jesus is dead. They're headed home. And think of it this way. For three years they have followed Jesus. Jesus is dead. Three years down the tubes. We followed Him. He's dead. Their dreams are gone. All that is left is heartache and sadness. Jesus the Savior is dead. The cross had taken away their hope. And that's the mindset they have. And in verse 14, Luke says, As they were walking with each other, they were talking, and they were talking, excuse me, with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're walking along, dejected, sad, Jesus is dead, and they're they're talking about this. They were talking. And in in the original language, it indicates these two were having an intense conversation. They were talking, but it wasn't a casual conversation. It was an intense conversation. They were debating all that had happened. That makes a difference, right? This just wasn't a casual conversation. Dejected, sad. A lot of times when we're sad and we're kind of dejected, we can get what? Kind of intense, kind of... Frustrated, and that's where these two are. So here's how the conversation might have went. Alright? Jacob, which we only know one name, and I, I chose to name the other one Jacob, because that's a good Jewish name, right? Jacob. What do you make of all that has happened? Cleopas, I don't know. The thing I don't understand is why Jesus allowed our people and the Romans to mistreat him in such a way. How could that possibly be honoring to God? He didn't even try to defend himself. What I don't understand, says Cleopas, is that we know he had supernatural power. He could have wiped those soldiers out at any time. You don't think those miracles he performed were fake, do you, Jacob? How could they have been? You saw quite a few of them with your own eyes. No, somehow he must have believed it necessary to die on the cross. In fact, I even remember him making comments to that effect. 
But why? What about all this talk about the kingdom? I don't have a clue, said Jacob. By the way, do you think there's any chance at all that those women really saw an angel? What about their claim that there was a resurrection and Jesus wasn't there? I don't know what you think. Wouldn't He have showed Himself to us if He had risen? Wouldn't He have done that? Cleopas. The women probably wanted to believe it so much that they talked themselves into it. All I know is that we had better stay away from Jerusalem for a while because those Romans are probably going to come after us next. That's kind of the conversation they're having. You can imagine that. Distraught. Sad. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. And we followed this guy for three years. We've given our life to him. We thought there was a kingdom coming. And now he is dead. Do you get the picture of what they're thinking, what's going on? Look at scene 2, verses 15 through 27. It says on your handout that their minds are opened to the Scriptures. This is probably the, the most critical part of this narrative here, these verses here. Jesus comes up to them. He appears, but they don't recognize Him, right? Verse 15 says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near, and He went with them. The two disciples are discussing. How are they discussing? There's this intense, aggravated, frustrated, sad, disappointed conversation going on. And Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Drew near has the idea that Jesus kind of snuck up behind them and He walked along with them. Visualize this, okay? And it says, and He went with them. means that Jesus said nothing. He just kind of snuck up behind them and He just kind of walks along with them. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. The idea is here that that's passive and that Jesus did not want them to recognize Him. He kept them from recognizing who He was. Finally, Jesus Jesus interrupts. Notice verse 17. And He said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And notice what they did when Jesus asked this question. And they stood still, looking sad. The word conversation, again, has the idea of a heated discussion. They are upset, okay? And Jesus kind of casually interrupts them. And it may have been something kind of like, what are you guys talking about? What in the world has got you so upset? Jesus is hearing the conversation, right? They're questioning everything. Jesus is hearing it. He says, what is it that has got you so upset? Look at verse 17, the latter part. They stood still looking sad. Literally, they came to a a standstill, dejected and gloomy faces. They stopped in their tracks. They had lost their joy. And then in verse 18, it says, we're told, I kind of laugh when I, I read this, that Cleopas said to Jesus, and this is with sarcasm, okay? Remember his attitude, his disposition, frustrated, angry, and dejected. And Jesus asks this question, and Cleopas responds, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Sarcasm. He doesn't know this is Jesus. It's like one of those uh, come on man moments. You ever watch ESPN and hear the guy say, come on man? It's kind of like that's what's going on here. Imagine the scene. Cleopas is saying, are you the only one visiting who is not aware of what's happened? Who's he talking to? The person who's well aware of what has happened. 
Do you have your head in the sand? You've been in Jerusalem. What's going on? How in the world could you miss all that's happened? Cleopas, in effect, is asking Jesus, kind of, do you ever get out much? What is it with you? Do you really mean that you don't know anything about all these things that have happened? You get the picture, right? They have no idea this is Jesus. Jesus is well aware of what's happened. And they're kind of being snotty and sarcastic toward Him. And notice Jesus' response in verse 19. Now, Jesus could have said a lot of things, right? He could have said a lot of things, but notice His patience and His grace. What's the next two words? What things? Jesus just says, why don't you catch me up to speed? Why don't you tell me what's been going on? And for the next six verses, the two men give Jesus all the details. Look at verses, the verse 19 through 24, the latter part of verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the, what day? Third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Did you catch what they said? Did you you listen to what they said? They had all the specifics, right? They had all the, the details, but they couldn't put it all together. Did you notice some things? Crucified. Third day. He's alive. Somebody went to the tomb and he wasn't there. I think the problem with these two disciples is in those last few words. But him they did not see. They had all the details, they had all the clues, but they were what? They were still blind to the fact. They they didn't understand. For three years they had lived and served Jesus. They had heard him time after time speak and say that he was going to die and three days later rise from the dead. And guess what day it is? They even say it's the third day. They point that detail out. At this point, I want to say, and you want to say, right? Are you guys really that hard-headed? Right? We, we want to say that about them, right? And you might be prone to think, Jesus, right now is the perfect time to tell them who you are But Jesus does not do so, does He? Wouldn't you think if you're this is the perfect time to tell them, hey, it's me, look, I'm alive. Everything you heard is true. Why would He not do that? Maybe it's because their faith in Jesus was tied, listen to me, to what they could see. Jesus wanted their faith to be tied not to sight, but to what? This. It's not about what you can see that you base your faith on. It's about what's in here that you base your faith on. 
Kind of sounds like you and I, right? We want to see everything. We waver in our faith. We waver in our trust in Jesus because we can't see everything, right? This is yes. Nod your head. We do that. We'll trust you, Jesus, but first, you need to show us everything, right? We can't live by faith, or better yet, we want to write the story of how our life goes, right? And for the unbeliever, he wants to decide how he'll be made right with God and how he'll gain eternal life. All human beings have their idea of how things should go. If we can't see it, that's our problem. We've got to see it before we will believe. And Jesus wants the believer's faith to be tied not to His sight, but to the Scriptures. Jesus wants the unbeliever to trust Him the way He's revealed in the Word of God. The Bible calls the unbeliever to turn from his sin and to trust in the perfect life of Jesus, to trust in His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. That's what He calls the unbeliever to do through the Word of God, but unbelievers... We like to think of other ways that we would be able to be reconciled to God. And notice here, verse 25, the minds of these disciples are going to be open to the Scriptures. He begins in verse 25 by saying, O foolish ones, in case you're wondering, um, when the Son of God, God Himself, calls you foolish, you're foolish, right? And slow of heart... To believe, what's the next word? I want you all to say that with me. All that the prophets have spoken. Notice that word all. You don't believe all that the prophets have spoken. You're foolish not to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The disciples' problem was not, was in, excuse me, was in focusing on parts of God's word, but ignoring other parts. They got the specifics right, but they were ignoring other parts of the Scriptures. And in that particular time, all they had was the Old Testament, which is something for us to think about. Believing in Jesus, can I tell you this? Believing in Jesus is not enough. Now some of you are going, well, that's what the Bible calls us to do. Here's the point I'm making. I have people tell me all the time, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You ever, had, you, ever, you ever talk to someone that says, Oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But what do you believe? You can't believe just parts. Jesus says you must believe what? All. You can't make up what you want to believe about God and about Jesus. Jesus is pointing the disciples, He's pointing me and you here to all that the Bible has to say about Him. So that lets me know... That lets us know as we share the gospel with people that we can't just give parts. We've got to give it all. When people say, I believe in God, we need to be careful to say, what do you believe about God? Here's what the Bible says about God. Look at verse 26. What was the all that the prophets had spoken? Notice what Jesus says. Was it not necessary? That's a very critical word there. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. Jesus tells these two men, He tells all men, all of us sitting here today, that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer these things. It was what, church? It was what? Necessary. Necessary means this, that this has to happen in order for something else to happen, right? 
You know, you tell your kids, you must do this or this. Jesus isn't necessary. Jesus must die and rise from the dead in order for what, church, to happen? For sinners to be forgiven. And these disciples are are missing this. Necessary also points to God's sovereign purpose. Luke wants us to know that God is in charge. He's in charge of all history, moving it along according to His sovereign purpose. And this is especially true in the greatest tragedy in history, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus. God was in control of that. Isaiah chapter 53 says it pleased God to bruise His Son. It pleased God to put Him on the cross to die for sinners. And although it was the worst crime that could have ever been committed, the men who did it were responsible for their actions. God sovereignly ordained the death of Jesus. It didn't thwart His plan. It actually what? Fulfilled it. It was God's plan for Jesus to die. And these disciples are missing that. Notice verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Did you hear that? This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I think some of you have heard me say why it is. This verse changed my life when I understood what it was telling me. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures of things concerning Himself. In short, Jesus interpreted to these disciples Himself from what? The Old Testament. Because that's all they had at that time. That's what the word Scriptures means in this particular... It's pointing back to the Old Testament. Literally, in all the parts or all the books of Scripture, Jesus explained to them how they applied to Him. Jesus in all of the Bible, including what church? Not just the New Testament, but Jesus is where? In the Old Testament. And they still did not know that this was Jesus. He's he's explaining to them. Can you imagine walking this seven mile trip back to this town and Jesus is teaching a crash course on the Old Testament? And He's telling them what? This points to Jesus. Can you imagine that sermon? Seven miles they walked. And Jesus preached for seven miles. It took them about two hours. And some of you are going, oh my. Now you understand why I only preach 35 or 40. Hopefully that's the case, you're thinking. But for two hours, Jesus preached to them... Who? Jesus. And they still didn't know who He was. Let me walk you quickly through some of the books of the Old Testament. And here's what Jesus may have pointed out to them. In the book of Genesis, He's the prophesied seed who will crush the serpent's head. He's the brother, Joseph, betrayed by his kinsmen who will, who will betray, whose betrayal will lead to their deliverance. You remember the story of Joseph? How he went to, and he became the, the, the ruler in Egypt. Joseph is a picture of Jesus who will deliver his people. The book of Exodus, he's the great I Am. He's the Passover Lamb whose blood protects his people from the angel of death and the wrath of God. In Leviticus, he is the tabernacle of God among men. We look at that tabernacle in Leviticus and we think that's just a building, right? And it actually physically existed, but we just look at it, that's a building where these priests went in and they did all these sacrifices. 
But in the book of Leviticus, Jesus is the brazen altar, signifying His death, which gives entrance. He's the brazen labor, promising the cleansing from every sin. He's the bread, signifying the food that gives everlasting life. He's the golden lampstand, the light of the world that never be extinguished. Remember they said those lights must never go out. He's the altar of incense, perpetually interceding on our behalf. He's the veil. Through Him is the only access into the presence of God. That's what the veil was pointing us to. He's the ark. He embodies that holy place where heaven touches earth. He's the holy of holies. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. In the book of Numbers, He's the great hope in whom all can safely put their trust. He is the great high priest who will never fail. Deuteronomy, He's the Lord our God. He's the city of refuge where criminals may run for protection. The book of Joshua, He's the champion over every enemy that stands in the way of God's people. The book of Ruth, which we've studied through, He's the wealthy landowner who redeems His Gentile bride from hopeless poverty, placing her in the family line of royalty, giving her the right to everything in His vast estate. Kings and Chronicles, and you're going, I've read Kings and Chronicles, I know Jesus is not in there. He's the sovereign king behind and above all kingdoms, both pagan and God-fearing. The book of Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken lives and the restorer of broken fellowship. And Esther, which by the way, in the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. You never find God mentioned in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, he's behind the scenes, outsmarting the evil one. He's seeing that his remnant remain, whispering in the ear of a young queen that for such a time as this, she has been crowned. In the book of Job, He is the majestic one who rides upon the wind and commands the the lightning. He's the Lord of mystery who does not explain life but reveals His sovereign will over all of life. In the book of Psalms, He's the rock of refuge. He's the shepherd of the sheep, the tower of shelter, the sweet honey of revelation, thirst-quenching water, a crucified Savior, and a sin-forgiving Redeemer. In the book of Ecclesiastes, He's the eternal satisfaction over earthly desire. He is the one to be remembered in the days of our youth. The book of Isaiah, He's Emmanuel, the suffering Savior. In Jeremiah, He's the branch of righteousness who brings justice and equity. In the book of Ezekiel, His resurrection power, breathing breathing, excuse me, life into dry bones and bringing life from death. You know, what, you, know you know what that's pointing to in the book of Ezekiel? The valley of dry bones? That's pointing us to Jesus. In the book of Hosea, He's the faithful husband of the faithless wife. In Amos, He's the wrath of God against oppressors. He is the promise of vineyards and gardens where His children will one day rest. In the book of Jonah, He's the fulfillment of the sign that after three days and three nights, the Son of Man will come forth vindicating the righteousness of God and resurrection power. In the book of Micah, He's the one who pardons our iniquities, who does not retain His anger forever, who delights in unchanging love. In the book of Zephaniah, yeah, there's a book named Zephaniah. In the Old Testament. He's the one who will gather those who grieve and those who are lame and those who are outcast. He is the one who will turn their shame and despair into everlasting praise. In the book of Haggai, he is the victorious Lord of hosts who will shake the heavens and the earth as he overthrows the nations of this world. In the book of Malachi, which ends the Old Testament, he's the divine refiner, setting over the smelting pot of his universe, purifying his chosen people as silver and gold. He is the great King who does not change. 
What a sermon. Can you imagine Jesus not knowing it was Him preaching you through the Bible and saying, look guys, you're missing something here. Here is Jesus. In verse 28, scene 3, the eyes are open to the Savior. Verse 28 tells us they arrive in Emmaus. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going a little bit further. Notice verses 29 through 31. But they urged him strongly, saying, What? At this point, I'm going, I'm like them. Man, don't leave us. Hang out with us. We like you. But they still don't know it's who. They still don't know it's Jesus. Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. It's interesting that Jesus acts as the host here and not the guest, right? Did you pick up on that? Verse 31, And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him and He vanished from their sight. Here's the question. When were their eyes opened? When He handed the bread to them and when they reached out and took the bread, their eyes were what? Opened. They realized who He was. Some commentators think that when Jesus reached out His hands, the bread was in His hands and what did they see? They saw the nail prints in His hands. But what does Jesus do? He disappears. Why did Jesus wait until this point and physically reveal Himself to these two disciples? Why wait now? Why not when He first came up to them as they were walking along the road? When they were sad? When they had lost their hope? Why did He not do that then? But He had revealed Himself. What was the first way, listen to me, what was the first way that Jesus revealed Himself to them? Verse 27, look at it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Jesus says, you want to know about the Savior? You want to know what's going on in this world? Where do you go? You go to the Scriptures. Jesus waited and He showed Himself physically, Because He wanted to show Himself first in the Scriptures. Here's the takeaway for you and I. Our hope is not anchored in what we see around us. It's anchored in what God has to say to us in His Word. It's not what we see, but it's what God has to say to us in His Word. The question is not, what do you see in order to believe? But what does the Bible say in order to believe? These disciples had lost hope. They were heading back home. They were... Going in the wrong direction, right? What were they doing? They were walking away from hope. They were walking away from that. And Christian, let me say this to you. Jesus knows the path you're on right now. My question to you, are you without hope? We get that way sometimes, right? As your pastor, I get that way sometimes. But where does Jesus say to go to renew your hope? Not in what you see, but in what the Word has to say about our God. They have a way of pointing us to the Savior. He's everything you need. Run to the Word of God. Non-Christian, Jesus knows the path you're on today as well. He knows where you are. He knows where you're sitting today. He divinely ordained that you would be here in this congregation today. He knows where you're at spiritually. He knows you're lost. He knows that you're separated from Him. He knows where you're at emotionally. 
Notice verse 32. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? Listen to what it says next. While He opened to us the Scriptures. What did the Scriptures do for these two disciples? It took them from heartache to what? Heartburn. The Word of God burned within them. Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? And how did Jesus talk to them about Himself? Through the Scriptures. They recognized Jesus. Their hearts were burning with the Scripture. And here's here's what I want to say to you, Christian. Do you need a fresh view of Jesus today? Is your hope waning? What do we do? We run to the Word of God. Because Jesus says, there you find me. Non-Christian, you're heading in the wrong direction today. Today in this very moment, it's no accident you're here. Jesus is pursuing you with His Word. That's what's happening here today. If you're lost, you're here today because God put you here to hear His Word. God is showing you grace this very day through His Word in order to bring you to salvation. It's no accident that you're here today. Verses 33-35. Quickly. Scene 4. Mouths are opened for the Savior. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. When did they get up and go back to Jerusalem? They didn't wait till the next morning. They, they got up when? Right then. And how far did they walk? Seven miles, two hours, back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of bread. What do they do? They get up and they walk seven miles as fast as they can go back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they're telling the story as fast as they can get it out. Jesus opened their minds, then He opened their eyes, and then He opened their, what? Mouths. Church, is that us today? Does Jesus open your mouth, believer, to proclaim from the Scriptures the need for salvation through Christ? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is talking about the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God owns you. You belong to Him, and that's a good thing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim. Now what does proclaim mean? Open your mouth and words come out. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. When you're in the place, believer, when you're tempted to say, life is too hard. It's not supposed to be this way. My plan would be better if I were in charge. And that's us, right? When you do that, you're doubting the power of God in His redemption of your life and in the resurrection. When you're there, 
He has you right where He wants you and you have no idea of the joy that He's capable of giving you when you believe and when you trust Him through what the Scriptures say. No rug can be pulled out from under you when your confidence is in the power of the resurrection of Jesus as it's revealed in the Bible. No circumstance can take that away from you. Nothing. There's a song. I think Jeremy Count sings it. And he's talking about from the book of Romans. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives where? It lives in you. Why? Because it raised your dead life to the marvelous light. It brought you out of darkness into light. The same... Does that not kind of make you think the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is what lives in you as a believer? So therefore, no trial, no hardship... No matter how hard someone can be to share the gospel with, you have the power within you to do that through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you. If you're an unbeliever here today, there's no sure and certain hope in life that is built on anything other than Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. If your hope is built, if your joy is dependent on anything else, It's not going to last. It will fade. It will go away. But turning from sin and trusting in Christ, the perfect life, the death and resurrection of Jesus brings in a hope that will never go away. And here's what I want to say to the unbelievers today. The difference between heaven and hell is the difference between self-reliance and Jesus' reliance. If you're relying on your plan and how you understand God... To get you to heaven, you are going to be extremely disappointed. But in Jesus, as He's revealed in the Scriptures, not how you believe Him, but how He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures as the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose from the dead for you, who calls you to repent of your sin and trust in His work to save you. That's Jesus' reliance. Anything other than that you are doomed to an eternity separated from God. Let's pray.